the best advice is just trust your instincts. If you've got a really good story, somebody wants to hear it. I was, I mean, I, I always thought no one ever going to want to know about ASIO. And then after I spied really broke, it was the Adelaide uh, Fringe Festival where it just went freaking crazy. I remember bumping into James O'Loughlin. Now, I've been doing stand-up comedy for, with James O'Loughlin for years, and he turned around and went, what the hell, ASIO? And I went, yeah, he went, why didn't you ever talk about this before? And I went, who wants to hear about it? And he went, I think your ticket sales indicate who wants to hear about it, mate. Hi, I'm Jules, and with me is Stocks. On today's Behind the Podcast, we're talking with former ASIO officer David Callum from the I Spied podcast, the hilarious, informative, and sometimes frightening podcast. That's right. So we kind of went down this wormhole a few weeks ago when we spoke to Dragon Friends. I guess the idea of improv and a live show becoming a podcast. This is going a bit further down that road because I Spied was a live show for years, toured nationally, internationally. And then the kernel of that idea, I guess, has become a podcast, which is quite different. But it's the same guy, it's a similar theme, it's a similar brand. So it'd be interesting just to explore the journey going the other way with everyone pushing to make their podcast live shows. Have a look at how it goes the other way. Yeah, totally. And finding a co-host as well. Um, he's obviously not doing it alone. He's got the wonderful... Michelle Stevenson. Who's helping him out there. Operating is the kind of straight person to, you know, his, his comedy. Yeah, but we're talking to Dave today because he's coming from... The journey is his as far as... The ASIO background leading into the improv lifestyle, even to the live show, and then we all got involved when it became a podcast. Interesting chat. Yeah. Let's get stuck in. Dave, what is I Spied the Podcast? I Spied is an idiot's look into life as an intelligence officer in Australia. Um, well, it started as that because that's what I used to do. I was an intelligence officer at ASIO and it sort of morphed into a live show and then it morphed into the podcast. And the podcast is now morphing into something far bigger than I expect it to be in that it's not just about life in ASIO. It's literally we're grabbing onto whatever is going on in intelligence around the world and we're putting my particular and Michelle's particular spin into it, which is really, really good fun. It's great the way it's evolved over the year. So we will dive back into you know where you've come from a bit further. You are a former ASIO officer. Do you mind giving us a kind of like year range around where that... 1986 to 1993. Yeah. So I went through uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall. So the end of Soviet communism. That was like, you're welcome. That was my work. Yours and uh, what's his name? Oh, Winds of Change. No, oh, and Hasselhoff. Yeah, Hasselhoff. Yeah, and Hasselhoff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Three of us, man, we were just tight. Um, yeah, really, we all looked terrible. We were all... I was big on really skin tight jeans and pirate shirts. Correct. Yep. Came back around a couple of years ago, so yeah. no doubt dusted those off again. Literally came back around <laughs> and disappeared back through the corner as everyone went, no, pirate shirts and skin tight jeans are a bad idea. And let me tell you, working as an ASIO officer, wearing skin tight jeans and puffy shirts, yeah, you're just not going to cut it. So yeah, there was Tiananmen Square, there was the first Gulf War, which was really exciting. Um, so that was my period. And also it was a big transition through information technology as well. There was a lot of changes going mm. on. So your, your ambition wasn't always ASIO. You it had other... never ASIO. Yeah. My ambition was to become an actor. In Canberra, there was lots of uh, theatre that you could do. And I auditioned for NIDA and they told me I didn't have a sense of humour, right. which I took very personally. I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I did was uh, I needed a public service job, so I applied for the public service. The public service 
was downscaling at the time, but ASIO were moving their headquarters up into Canberra from Melbourne after the Woods Royal Commission. They, the government basically decided we probably should have our premier domestic spy agency kind of close to home rather than operating uh, remotely. Makes sense. So I got recruited. I was the 50th person in the new headquarters. Um, and my first job was unpacking files, literally taking them out of the boxes. They'd been placed in boxes, put in secure trucks, driven to Canberra, and then they were unloaded into the registry floor, and then we had to load them into the vaults. Hearing some of the episodes and the way that you first really got out of the mailroom, I suppose, mm-hmm. is, is quite incredible. Yeah. And I look, I didn't know what I was getting into. I seriously, even when I was going through the process, I didn't really know what ASIO was until I got in there and I walked into orientation week where it's your training experience. And, you know, you know these are the uh, classifications of intelligence and these are the sort of things you're expected to do. This is personal security. And then one guy walked in, very cool guy, was the head of training, walked in and just went, people say that terrorism doesn't exist in Australia. They're wrong hits the button, the lights go out, the screen goes up, and it's just terrorist incident after terrorist incident in Australia. And it was like, wait a second, what the hell am I doing here? And then I was in in the system. Now, admittedly, I was in the mailroom. But I got pulled out of the mailroom because literally stupid mistakes I'd made. I'd sort of made contact with the wrong people. Uh, My favourite was I wound up being a very close friend of a guy from GCHQ that was based in Australia. Of course, I slept with the um, personal assistant of the CIA station chief. Whoops. Just (laughs) literally (laughs) fell into that one. And then I did a little bit of training that then drew me into stuff like, uh, of course, the surveillance exercise Mm. that led me sitting in a pornographic cinema watching a Soviet spy having sex on stage. Yeah, that's uh, Fulminski if you're looking for the episode. The Fulminski, exactly, yeah. Were you able to actually, like, the part of the appeal, I suppose, of going the government thing was having that flexi time and be able to keep the theatrics that was the going? That was the point. While all of this was going on in my life, I was doing around six or seven stage shows a year I was doing theatre sports. I was doing stand-up comedy. So I was living this dual life. So did you watch the the Russian guy on stage and then he came and watched you on stage? I I really hope so. I did. I gave him a ticket. I gave him a flyer. Dude, if you want to see something else, can't have sex in the middle of it, but mate, have a look. So yeah, it was that really fascinating thing of realising what was actually going on behind the scenes in Canberra as well. Because everyone... Cameras are really quiet and, and tired and sleepy little hollow, but man, behind closed doors, mm. it goes off. Did you have a specific plan on what you wanted to do in terms of theatre? Did you want to do stand-up? Was it acting? Was it? No, I am a pure improviser at heart, it seems, and really I just wanted to be on stage. I just loved being in front of an audience. So I was doing Shakespeare, I was doing uh, Ibsen, Stoppard, you know, Chekhov, you name it. I, if it was available and I was in the Ainge Rage, I went for it. And I was lucky enough to get a lot of the work, which was great. And then I started playing theatre sports because a girl I really liked started playing theatre sports. So I chased her to theatre sports, spent the first three nights on stage saying nothing. And then the dam broke and here I am 30 years later. <laughs> I teach the damn thing. Now. I can't imagine you sitting on stage saying nothing. I was terrified. Uh, yeah. It was that whole thing of, and people around me were so much quicker until you realise, just keep saying yes, go for it. Let it happen. Stop judging, stop editing, just let it roll. So we let it roll. And then about uh, six months later, a mate of mine who was doing stand-up comedy at the private bin 
one of the classiest joints in oh, Canberra. Oh, I know that The place. bin, mate. Oh. The bin. Uh, he said, you should come up and do some stand-up comedy. And, oh, I don't know what to do. I wouldn't know what to do. And I wound up on top of a car park in, in Canberra, in Civic, with this mate and his girlfriend. Uh, funny story about this mate and his girlfriend, by the way. And I just sort of blathered stuff at him and he stopped and went, stop, 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 stop. That's You've been going for 25 minutes. Yeah, you've only fine. got five in the you early. You only need five. <laughs> um, funnily enough, he now works for ASIO. Right. You're role reversed. He literally, he started working for ASIO about six weeks after I left. So have you become like the unofficial sort of training program as in like actors make really good spies? Let's no, 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 no. I am literally that. I am we'll the... never do that again. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. This is the, uh, this is the what we don't want. The example. HR manual. Yeah, the HR manual. <laughs> if you open it and see my my photo, you're on the Just wrong all the <laughs> <laughs> This is not what we're looking for. So did how long did these two careers live side by side and did they intersect or Seven years. get in the way? They, no, 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 they, they lived together. Well, that was the interesting thing. They, they literally, I literally lived these two lives for seven years, right? And they didn't get in the way. In fact, funnily enough, it's like, as I said, really close friend of mine wound up being a member of GCHQ, which is um, the UK's premier sort of intelligence, signals intelligence organisation. Now, Enigma, Bletchley Park, mm. all that sort of stuff, Cheltenham. The, this guy was, had this broad Scottish accent and was a phenomenal actor. And he was a British diplomat who kept showing up at all of these different shows, right, and performing in them. He was brilliant. Like he he was in um, he played Salieri in Amadeus with a Scottish accent and nailed it. <laughs> right, the guy was a genius. And the funny thing about it was, it wasn't until about two three years after I met him that a memo comes across my desk with all the British declared intelligence officers because you have declared and undeclared. So a declared intelligence officer, like if ASIO has a declared intelligence officer in the UK, will say, hey, this is our ASIO guy. He's the one you want to talk to about anything intelligence. If we have an undeclared one, it's like it, oh, the Russians were perfect for this. This is our third assistant secretary for cultural attaches. Like, so, yep, definitely KGB. So the whole thing was this guy, his name was at the top of the list. And now I you would talk openly about what I did. I had no bones. My perfect cover for work for ASIO when people said, what do you do? I'd say, I work for ASIO. Everyone just thought I was bullshitting. Yeah. <laughs> no one cared, right? And the great thing was I sort of walked up to him and he just like, he's looking at me. He went, what? And I went, uh, no, nothing. He went, you do work there, don't you? And I went, what? He went, you do work for ASIO, don't you? And I went, I don't know if I should tell you. I've declared it. It's okay. You know that, don't you? And I went, yeah, I saw your name on a memo today. And he went, yeah, well, there you go. And I went, you didn't worry? And he went, no, I didn't believe you. <laughs> right? So that was that weird thing. It didn't bother me. And when ASIO found out that I was doing all this theatre, they started using me in training exercises for role play. Right. So... What does that involve? All right, so basic intelligence, uh, operational intelligence course. So this is how we teach you how to recruit an agent. Um, you'll get a scenario. The scenario I generally got where I was a, a, a low-grade uh, officer in the Navy working as a submariner, working in Russell offices in defence um, on the new Collins-class submarines. Yes, they used to be new. <laughs> um, so, And this is something to keep in mind when you look at what's going on with uh, defence and intelligence now. So the whole thing is I'd get a phone call from a guy saying, hi, I'm from ASIO, uh, your name's Sam, is that right? Yeah, Sam, I would really like to have a chat with you. Would I be able to visit you at home? 
And right, you know, you've been briefed as to what's expected and what you're meant, to, what this guy's after, right? So he'd come in and he's got to convince you that the Russian diplomat that you met at the cocktail party three weeks ago is a KGB agent and he's trying to recruit you as an agent. Now, of course, your reaction is, oh my God, I've done the wrong thing. I'll stop seeing him. And it's like, no, 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 no. Keep going. Keep it up. Keep it up. We want to get this guy and you're our access in. And it comes down to a thing called mice, money, ideology, compromise, ego. How are we going to capture this guy? So the whole idea is you're the guy working on their side, right? Then the other scenario you have is you are a hostile agent. So they're trying to recruit you to penetrate, say, a terrorist organization or you know, a, a politically radical and extremist organization. They're trying to get you to penetrate while you're going, no, 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 you don't want me and this is bullshit. There, and that's where the mice really comes into play. So you go through these stages and the great thing is you get, to, and it was good for me as an improviser, you get to call how, far, how much information you give this guy, mm. right? Now, the first person I had, honest to God, within five minutes, it was like literally, do you want me to shoot my mum as well? Because I'll do it. <laughs> and this guy was a phenomenal ops intelligence officer. He was very, very good, great field officer. The next one, it was like, I'm talking to my mum right it was she it was a female intelligence officer much older and she was like now he's a he might be a very bad man and it's like <laughs> which was the more effective approach yeah. <laughs> my attitude mm. was i was just looking at her going you do understand that i'm a serving naval officer and saying someone's a very bad man really doesn't impress yeah. me that much. <laughs> now i've been taught how to kill people um but then the other like and i had another one where i opened the door and they were always very cautious to make sure you never trained with someone you knew and you could do it in the organization. It's you know there are different offices, so there you can work an entire career and not meet people. So it really is like that. Thank God you're here, kind of you know setup. Yeah. But this guy opens the door, and it's a guy I'd worked with before. Yeah. And he just went, oh, oh, frosty. No worries, great mate. Uh, look, just tell me what I need because I've, I've got a date that I'm going to go on. And I, I, you know, it's like went. I'm going to call the cops if you don't leave because you said you're from Asia. It's like, mate, what are you doing? It's like slam the door shut. Now training would always ring you straight away. They'd ring you straight afterwards and go, how did it go? What do they say? And then they'd debrief the officer saying, look, you got this right, you got this wrong. It was just like, this is what the guy just did. And the great thing about that was then you have a second meeting with them and then a third meeting. Mm -hmm. And during these different meetings, they have to adapt to the briefing, you know, the notes they've been given. My favourite was the guy, the really, really solid guy, that um, like the one who I would literally sell my own family for. He finally arranged, you have to have a public meeting and you get to call the place. So I picked a place I knew had multiple entries so I could come in and watch him and see what he was doing. And then I picked an entry that would put me walking right across the room and I knew the bathroom was on the other side. And this is something I discussed with training and they went, yeah, that's a great idea, do that. Because the great thing is I got up, walked through the room and like he was going, hey, hey, and he was calling out to me. And that was the only mistake he made because mm. I walked across the room, went to the bathroom and then he followed me into the bathroom going, what's the problem? And I just went, dude, I have no idea who's on my tail. You told me to be careful and now you're following me into the bathroom. This looks really stupid. And you could just see him go, ah, oh, Yeah, just blowing the cover straight away. I'd blown uh, my cover. Uh, but, you know, it was a, for me it was a lot of fun because I get to do my acting. Absolutely. Which was great fun. And, um, you know, it then wound up, it finally came to a head at the Christmas party. Right. Where um, I'd, 
I'd done a lot of work. I'd worked my way up. I had really good access. I had really good clearances. I had a really, really good job working essentially as the morale officer for the organisation, running their their staff newsletter, but also working as in editorial services. So I'm writing parliamentary and cabinet briefs mm-hmm. and trying to put jokes in it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, how can I make a joke out of that title? Um, so what happened was... Um, I got on very well with the psych section as well. Funny that. The psychologists really dug me. It's like, this guy's actually going to explode. Um, and they said, wouldn't it be great if we could put some sort of comedy review on for the Christmas party? And okay. I went, let's do it. Yeah, hands up, please. Thank yep, you. Done. I'm in. Um, and we put on a Christmas party, like a, a big review at the Christmas party with lots of jokes and songs and stupid stuff. But we played a game of celebrity heads with two intelligence officers and the deputy director general who did not like me at all. And it made my career very, very uncomfortable, particularly once I had profile in the organisation. He was just like, we have to kill this man. <laughs> and he made it horrible. So what I did was I went, great, we're going to have two people up and, you know, and the DDG. And so the hats were the Pope, the Dalai Lama, and the hat that the DDG was wearing was his name. So every question was about, you know, am I a, a, a revered figure? Mm. Boom, great laughs from yeah. the audience. And he's like going, what's going on? I have the video of it. I, I managed to get that yeah, out of the like, building. There's a cyanide pill waiting for no, you. No, the beautiful <laughs> thing was when one of the guys who was the Pope finally figured out that he was the Pope, right? I went, take your hats off and have a look. And the DG takes his hat off and turns it around and looks. And it was just like the look of death. It's like, <laughs> you are fucked, mate. So the, that was the night the DG asked me to leave. Um, he basically walked up and said, uh, we're currently going through a retrenchment thing and we can give you a really good package. Please leave. Um, and his thing was, you are a much better comedian than you'll ever be a, an intelligence officer. It's time for you to go. And I left the organisation and I was free. Yeah. When uh, comedians and, and performers you know, first start out, it can be quite, uh, I guess, you know, stressful being up on stage, maybe depending on how much training you've had. Yeah. They're not leading double lives as, you know... ASIO officers, did you find uh, like that sort of helped prepare you for the stage or the stage helped prepare you for the ASIO side better? I mean, what was the kind of synergy uh, really with those two it's, That's actually a really, really good question because the funny thing was in Canberra, going on stage, the, the stage life and the ASIO life very rarely met in my head, if you know, mm. mentally. It was like there was a complete cognitive disconnect between the two. During the day, I'm an ASIO officer. At night, I'm an actor and a comedian. Mm. Right, and there was really there was, and I never went overseas when I worked for ASIO. I had no travel overseas whatsoever because I used all my leave to go and do shows. So if I had a production week, I'd just take a week off. So I was always really careful not to let the two blend. Um, to be honest, I found it. I, I suffered really badly from stress when I because I left ASIO and went straight into Breakfast Radio, which I was. I was not prepared for. And that was a world that was utterly alien to me. And I basically spent seven years of my life living under siege where you don't tell any tell people a lot of stuff to a job where you basically tell everyone everything. everything. Mm. And people would sort of say, why are you being so hesitant? Why are you reticent? Why are you holding back? I mean, you may not have noticed, but I've kind of gotten over it now. Yeah, you solved that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've worked my way through that problem. <laughs> but it was that re- that for me was a real problem. Once I left ASIO, I was getting over the fact that I don't have to hide anything anymore. When was I Spied born? I Spied was born out of literally sitting there with my wife. We were watching the towers fall, 
And it was my wife who turned around and she went, mate, if you don't do a show about ASIO now, there'll never be a better time. And I, I, if very, when you think about it, it's quite bloody-minded. But, yeah, it was like, this is going to blow up crazily. And that night, I got more phone calls from people because everyone knew where I worked. I told mm. all of my friends where I worked. And I just had per, you know, friends after friends after friends going, what the hell's going on? What the hell's going on? What the hell's going on? To which I was like, I, I don't work there anymore. And the great thing is I did think, I'm going to ring my old number, my old desk number. I wonder if someone will be sitting at my desk right now. It's 11 o'clock at night. Fuck it. I'm going to ring it. And rang that number and someone picked up. Shit. What did they say? Yes. Oh, no. They said, hello, which is all you're allowed to say when you you, know, you pick up a phone in ASIO. You don't go, hi, ASIO, Dave speaking. It's like, no, that doesn't work. So um, I just got, hello, and I just went, Frank, who's this? It's Frosty. What do you want? I went, what the hell's going on? He went, call me in January and hung up. Right. So and it was just like, dude, we do not have time for this. Like, my desk should not have had anyone at it anyway at that time of night, but literally the entire building just went up in arms. It was like everyone back to their desks, get to work. Yeah. It's 11 o'clock at night, we don't give a shit where you are, get into work. And it was crazy. I'm surprised they didn't try and recruit Frosty back again just for the extra I want them to that recruit, time. I want them to recruit me now to run their Twitter feed because it's not good enough, boys. Uh, so I spied, then the, I had a friend of mine who's a director and I said, I want to do this show. And he said, right, let's do a rehearsal. And I walked, he walked into the rehearsal and said, show me the script. And I went, well, I've got these notes to which he went, all right, when you're serious, call me. And he walked out the door. Yeah. And a week later I called him and went, I've got a script. And he basically went, great, send me the script. And called me about two hours later and went, let's get together and talk about this. And then he cut the script to ribbons because the script was about three hours long. Um, we cut it down to about 90 minutes. Uh, it was a two act show. And the great thing was we did it seven Sunday nights in a row down at the old Fitzroy hotel. Oh, the old Fitz. Yeah. The Fitz mate. Fantastic. Great. And the first night, 16 people second night. And it was also the coldest night on record in Sydney, eight people. And I was just like, why am I bothering? This is so ridiculous. And then the third night, the third Sunday night, the director walked into the theatre and went, mate, we've got a problem. Now, I knew we had 35 bookings. I knew we had 35 bookings. And I just like, well, I can't do this anymore. I give up. I'm just going to get a bar job. What's the point? My life's absolute disgrace. And he went, we have a waiting list of 20 people. Yeah. I went, what? And he went, we've sold out. And we've got 20 people who want to come in. To which I went, Bring them in. So we had them sitting on the stage. And from that point on, it just kept selling out. And it was it was like, for me, it was great fun. But the nice thing was every week we got to go, what worked, what didn't? Oh, that little, that little sort of digression you made, leave that in. That's really good. Yeah, this bit's not working. Drop it. We don't need it. I mean, there's so many chunks of the show that I really love that I haven't done in years. Yeah. Because it's like, there's just no time for this. And there would have been no shortage of, of content, I suppose. Oh, no, 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 no. That's the, for me, it's like it's seven years of working there and some of the stuff is utterly ridiculous. Some of it's quite scary and some of it's just, that's government for you. It, mm. was, a, it was a really strange thing to be involved in simply because it's got that, it, the show itself, like I had some great experiences doing it. My favourite was when I was in Melbourne at the Comedy Festival and I walked out of the show and I was in a, an apartment block behind um, the Athenaeum. And I was performing in the Vic Hotel, so I just had to walk around the block. And I'm in my suit and I'm sweating like a pig. I've just come off stage. I bump into um, 
Adam Hill, who just went, mate, congratulations. And I went, oh, thanks, have you seen it? And he went, yeah, we we're all talking about it. And I went, what? And he went, the review in the chortle. And I went, what are you talking about? And he went, dude, it's it's amazing. Have you, have you, do you know what the chortle is? No, because I'm an idiot. I don't know what's going on. And he went, read the review. And it was this really fantastic review in the chortle that, again, boom, the numbers start selling again. Like, the show sold out. But I sort of, as I sort of walked around the corner from him going, cloud nine, going, oh, my God, this is it. This is amazing. And there are two guys I knew from ASIO standing outside the, the Athenaeum. Uh, and it's like, oh, g'day, boys. And they went, you want to hop in the car? Yeah. And I'm like, right. no, I really don't. Yeah. And they went, let's hop in the car. We need to have a talk. And I went, no, we don't need to talk in that car. We need to talk in that cafe in front of a lot, a of, lot people. of people. Yeah. And they went, you don't want to do that. And I went, yeah, I really do. And in fact, I don't want to do it now. I'll be back in 15 minutes. I'm going to go upstairs to have a shower. And they went, don't think you're going to run off, mate. And it's like, yeah, like, where am I going to run to? Yeah. And then <laughs> I got out the front side of the like, Yeah, whatever, guys. Yeah, sure, fine. I'll be back in 15 minutes and then get into my room and go, oh my <laughs> God, what have I done? And I'm running it. I'm in the shower, just running it. What have I said? What have I put in the show? What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? I've said something. It's really bad. This is really, really bad. And then um, get changed, go back downstairs. I'll be honest with you, I'd smoked a massive split before I went into this many. <laughs> <laughs> okay I'm ready and walked downstairs and they went are you serious you want to do this publicly and I went I am dead serious and they went that means we pull Fred's this means it goes on file Fred's are your official IDs uh -huh. they're minted documents they're not just something in a piece of like you know yeah, plastic, laminated laminated plastic these things come out of the Australian mint and I went if I don't see them and I don't see yours not your pseudonyms this is off and they went it goes on your file and I went not my problem, boys. And they both show me, great. I'll have a glass of wine, please. And they get me a glass of wine and we're sitting there. And I went, so what's the problem? And they went, what are you doing? Yeah, what? I mean, had you consulted with them? No. Yeah. No. I consulted with somebody who used to work there. I said, I'm going to do this. And he came and saw the show and he said, there's only two things that you've got wrong. But I'll explain that. But let me finish this story. But anyway, I said, they're like, what are you doing? What the hell do you think you're doing? And I went, guys, you've had over a year to have this conversation with me. So what do you really want? And they both went, we want tickets. Uh, and I went, what? And they went, you sold out, man. We can't get tickets. <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> right? They, I went, you bastards. They went, yeah, that was pretty funny. <laughs> that was <laughs> well, No, we yeah. saw the review in the chortle. You saw the review in the chortle. We had to, but it was, they, they basically went, how can we get a rise out of him? Because that was one of the things about the ASIO guys was the sense of humour you got to have to work there is pretty bloody big. That's sensational. Yeah. I can yeah. imagine it can get pretty dark and it's obviously, you know, a quick it way to get around It can get really... Like, the only time I travelled overseas when I was working there was I went to New Zealand to do a two-week impro tournament. Like, this huge international impro tournament. And I was really excited because this was like, I'm with real actors and real improvisers and I'm being a, an actor. And that whole... And it literally was that whole ASIO thing was whatever, I don't care. I just forgot about it. And I literally forgot that I worked for ASIO. And people go, what do you do in Australia? I'm a public servant. Did not care, did not talk about it, did not think about it, just had a ball absolutely wallowing in theatre. And then fly into a Sydney, walk up and immigration go, you, in that room. And I'm like, what? In that room. We right heard now. about the performances. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, yeah. Yeah. You kept blocking. <laughs> we don't, and I'm like, what's going on? They went, we need you. This is a strip search. And I went, Radio, get tab. It's like, I beg your pardon. I went, get tab. 
do it right now. I'm like going, I am not doing this. And I said, if we have to physically restrain you, we will. You will strip. And I went, I'm not stripping. You're going to go and get Tab. Tab was the ASIO liaison officer at the airport. He just walked in going, <laughs> you sucker, the look on your face, bitch. And it was like, yeah, they would quite happily put you up for a strip search coming into the country. I think that wouldn't happen now. But back in the day, back in those days, back in the old days where it was all a bit fun, now you did that, you would get your knuckles quite severely wrapped. But yeah, they did that. And it was just a take it on the chin, keep moving. You can't complain because you're a smart ass and every time you open your mouth, someone's going to put their foot in <laughs> if it ain't you. I've got these kind of uh, visions of, of spies and, and you know cops and everything from the movies just sitting in cars on stakeouts, yep. listening to the radio, shooting the shit and all that yep. sort of stuff. And it seems to me like if you were doing that now, it would have been perfect having podcasts and whatever to listen to. Yeah. They didn't exist back then. When did these kind of first come on your radio and you start to think this might be able to be you know transferred from the stage to this kind of format? Okay, I started listening to podcasts um, oh, about, oh, I'm trying to think, when the kids were little. That's the best way to describe it because you'd sort of get the kids done uh, and you get them to bed. So when I've got two boys, they're teenagers now. I mean, one's now an adult and one's about to be an adult. Um, but you get the, the, the day was done, around about 8 o'clock you could finally relax. My wife would go outside with a bottle of wine and a pack of cigarettes at a computer and go, leave me alone, <laughs> right. which is great. And I'd, do the, I'd clean the kitchen and all that sort of stuff. And I, you know, I would listen to audio books. And then I discovered how stuff works. Right. And got utterly junked on how stuff works. And then star stuff. And then I just started drilling down. One thing, and I still listen to it this day regularly, was um, the Rachel Maddow show. Because uh, I, I, I follow American politics. So, I mean, I follow politics everywhere. But the, the way it's absolutely just ballooned out of control is, um, is amazing. I mean, uh, one I really like listening to is the Conditional Release Report with Jack the Insider, um, because it's just, it just takes conspiracy theories, which is really the grist of ASIO. There's all these conspiracy theories, and we love them because they were so stupid. He just tears them apart. Um, Human Nature, I think it's called, which is basically this guy studying the way brains work, which is fantastic. And there's another one, and I think oh, Everything is Alive, which is, appeals to my impro sense, because it's essentially... This guy would go, uh, this is Jerry. Hi. Uh, Jerry is a, a generic brand can of cola. And this guy describes his life as a generic can of cola. And it's fascinating. You know, you are a bubbler. In, you know, this is Michael. He's a bubbler in the street. You know, this is Daphne. She's a hairpin. And these guys spin these really beautiful stories. Now, with I Spied... Um, the whole thing, when it, when I was asked to do it as a podcast, my first thought was, gee, I've got seven episodes in my brain and then I really don't know what to do. And when I was asked, you know, who do you want in the room with you? Do you want to do it alone? There's no way I could do this alone. I can do the stage show alone because I've got someone in the room with me. I've got the audience, audience and they yeah. give me that. I need someone to bounce off. Now, the idea was to give me a, a comedian and that really made me just balk because I'm that's kind of my job. Yeah, yeah. it's dueling banjos at yeah, that point. Yeah, there's no point. Uh, but the great thing was I'd done a podcast with Andrew P. Street and just one episode and Michelle Stevenson. And I rang Andrew and went, look, somebody's asked me to do I Spied as a podcast and I really like working with you and Michelle. And God bless Andrew. He just went, 
Look, uh, her number is, and I went, but he went, mate, two old blokes farting around in the studio is not what you want. You want to talk to her. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, my God, how do I approach Michelle Stevenson, you know, head of news for Nova and... Uh, National news director, I believe. Yes, uh, Instagram influencer, uh, invited to the opening night of Hamilton. How do I approach this woman? <laughs> and the great thing is I went, look, you probably don't remember me. We did an episode. I did an episode of your podcast talking about Asia. I really enjoyed it. I'm doing a podcast about Asia. Do you want to be involved? And she went, no! She was like, yep, I'm in. So it was like, I was utterly shocked at how excited she was about it. And she's been fantastic to work with as well because she's just got this real sense of being able to cut through. And mm. very much like my wife, she knows how to shut me up. <laughs> <laughs> it's great chemistry. Um, and the interesting thing I remember she saying was, um, I was looking for my podcast project. And it feels like, from what I know of your career, you've done the stand-up. Yep. You've done the improv, the yep. theatre sports, but you've also done the VO work. Yeah. Tons of TVCs, um, acting. Yeah. It seems like you were almost training to podcast. Well, that's the thing that's really fascinating about it is one of the things I find really hard doing is me, if, if you understand what that means, in that I... I love throwing a character onto something. I love like putting on a voice, uh, putting on an accent, putting on a physical sort of characteristic, which is all the improv and the comedy training. And I always found stand-up to be a bit... I didn't like me as a stand-up comedian. <coughs> Sorry, just got a little throat infection, but it's okay. Um, I didn't like being me as a stand-up comedian. I wasn't happy with me. And then the great thing about I Spied was it allowed me to take all of the theatrical training I had, all the comedy training I had, and all the impro training I had, and then talk about me, which, let's be honest, it's my favourite subject. <laughs> uh, now, what was really nice about it was coming into the podcast, there was a real sense of, like, to begin with, it was very much, this happened to me at ASIO, this is what it would be like now. Now what it is is, this is what's happening now, how would ASIO look at it? Mm. And how would you have looked at it back in the day? Um, and the great thing about that is it's, yeah, I'm now not just using the skills as a performer. I'm also using the knowledge and the analysis that I was trained with back in the day with ASIO. Because that was the weird thing. When people ask me where I went to university, I say I went to ASIO. Because that was. I spent seven years in an organisation that taught me to think in a very, very specific way. So with the podcast, I mean, I love it. I think podcasting is fantastic. There should be more of it. Um, I certainly should do more of it. Um, but the, I mean, there are podcasts that I just listen to and go, yeah, okay. But that's I'm not their audience. I think that's the other thing. It's when you find the audience that you that is attracted to you and attracted to what you're talking about. That's when you start really making headway. Yeah. So uh, bringing this uh, the stage show to a podcast and, 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 and bringing on Michelle for the first time, how did you guys work out the format of the show and, and how long was the show on stage originally and to the point where you're like, okay, 30 minutes seems about right or... Well, that was... I actually left that to Michelle. I mean, she sort of said, well, what are we going to talk about? And I, I think the first episode, which was um, uh, Armenian Dynamite, was... that, And that was a really shocking, shocking thing to experience very early on in your career to literally be sucked into a terrorist incident because yeah. of someone you know. Um, and she basically went, well, I'm going to just let you talk and I'll ask questions. And it really worked well until we, and the format was born very quickly. 
We do a quick intro. Mm-hmm. We then have the credits for want for want of a better word, and then we get right into it. We just dig right into the subject matter and start playing with it. And I think because of the impro that I've got, and also the fact that Michelle's a very very skilled journalist, she's able to go, yeah, you, you're you're going away now, or we're going to drag you back, yeah, or we're going to push you in a certain direction and see where it leads us. And it's it's actually quite free form. There is very very little structure to what we do and i was funny we were leaving the recording studio today i she was talking about how she's working on another podcast and she thinks she's going to have to have it very structured and i went do you feel we need that she went what would be the point Mm. it's like we don't need it because the chemistry and our experience allows us to actually bounce off each other quite naturally yeah so it's been a very organic process a lot of fun and the titles are fantastic oh mate sometimes it kills me to come up with the title (laughs) Last week's title actually really broke my heart because it was like, is anyone going to know what meliocrity is? Because it's really hard to think of stuff. There are weeks where I literally beat myself over the head because it's a huge rod to create for your back. But I love that idea of the play on words and the play on a title. And you knew that going in. I I think I said that after the second episode. I went, after the full Minsky, I'm like, yeah, I'm out. I really, 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 really wanted to use... um, Hot tub, oh yeah, hot tub spy machine. Yeah. That's one of my proud ones because it just says it all. <laughs> in a hot tub with a spy and Marines walk mm. in. Yep, hello, that's an impro scene right there. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great combination that you have because you like to improv. Michelle's from a world where she's got to be concise. Radio, mm. but news radio. So you've got 60 seconds to just break down the three top headlines yeah. in the country. And then she's playing the audience avatar as well. So she's trying to sort of contextualize your stories yes. to the audience. It's an amazing little blend that you've got there. And what's really lovely about it as well is like, I can remember there was one where she turned around and went, we're going to, I, just, I walked in and went, okay, today we're talking about this. And she went, I have no idea what that is. And I went, okay, I'll explain it to you. And the great thing about that was by the end of it, she went, oh, 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 right now I get what we're talking about. And she, you can see the, you literally see the light go on and she's like, oh, okay, I'm going to start ripping into you, mate, and getting you to, I'm going to direct this story, mm. which is really handy for me. I mean, with the stage play, it became so, so like, it was almost like a machine. Mm. And the great thing was there was, there were points where I was getting invited to do after dinner speaking. The the other funny thing is like intelligence conferences. I met the DG, the new, what is it? David Irvine, when he was DG of ASIO, I walk in to do this intelligence conference and um, you know, just half an hour after dinner speech. And there's one of my old mates from ASIO. And he was like a, a bit of a grunt level like me when I was there. So I said, oh, you know, what are you doing here? And he went, I'm the first assistant director general of intelligence services. And I went, oh, okay. So you're kind of important. He went, yeah, yeah, I understood you're doing your show. We'll have a chat afterwards. And I'm like, okay, be careful. Got up, did my bit, finished, and he's standing at the stage next to it, like by the stage. Went, you know, I'm walking off, thanks, thanks, thanks. And he walked up and went, someone needs to talk to you. And we go into the other side of the ballroom, which was the, it was a uh, security conference. So that was like the showroom with all the products you could buy. And I walk in there and there's the new director general. And he went, I've been in this job this, not for nine weeks, mate. And I went... <laughs> Okay. And he went, that's got to be the best briefing I've had on how the bloody place works. And I'm like, I'm safe. <laughs> so look, the great thing is I'm very cautious not to hit anything that's national security level. Yeah. 
Um, I'm, I'm very cautious not to actually reveal secrets. And because of that, I think ASIO are very tolerant. I think it's a don't ask, don't tell policy with me. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. <laughs> with the with the actual structure of the show, had you thought much about like, okay, we'd like this to be 10 episodes and th- it will go in this order? Because the other thing I really like is the cliffhangers that you have at the end of the show. I mean, I'm on to the next one straight away and just getting it. So It's so effective. No. Really? We'd love to say it was... Yeah, I totally look. I totally planned that. That's uh, I'm really I'm really about the the, the long arch yeah. <laughs> and a B plot. Yeah, there's and a B plot. And yeah, C plot's always the jokes. Uh, no, the weird thing about it is, I, I think life at ASIO does sort of have these cliffhangers in it anyway. Um, it's a it's a really really strange place to work because you're so cloistered and you you literally live a life under siege. You, you, your mind is set at you are under siege and everybody around you is not to be trusted until you've basically vetted them and made sure. And I think because of that, um, I kind of like the episodes to have that kind... I want the, the, the episodes to have a feel of, yeah, we're, we're covering something that's dangerous. Because a lot of what happens with ASIO is very dangerous, but you don't get to ever see what it means. I mean, lives are at risk. It's just... It's generally not the ASIO officers' lives. It's somebody else. If they get the job wrong, people get hurt. So when it came to the structure of the show, again, I really think it's a case of just Michelle controlling my stream of consciousness um, sort of narrative. And the natural thing that every improviser is taught is, you know, orientation, complication, resolution. Just keep that those three stages of a story going and you'll always wind up moving it along so it's yeah it's been a lot of fun i mean after as i said after seven episodes i was like going um what next and then things just pop out of the woodwork and little memories and the funny thing about it is the way it's triggering you old memories that i haven't thought about in years like i have the mailroom record i don't think anyone's broken it the mailroom car record 172 kilometers an hour over king's avenue bridge (laughs) <laughs> it was an old Nissan Skyline. Uh, <laughs> those things with the V6, mate, they could really crank it. Um, yeah, I had to get something to the Canadian embassy within like five minutes and I just went, I'm just going to drive this thing like I've got to get it there in five minutes. Like I'm in ASIO. Like in ASIO. Yeah. No, no, no. In ASIO, you don't get... If you get busted, you're done. Right. You get If you get busted speeding, breaking any road rules, you pay the fine. You had to bring attention or something like that. No, 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 no. It's the whole thing. If we can't... You can't... You can't. All right, here's hands on the table. Uh, about three weeks after I started with ASIO, I got arrested speeding and DUI, right? Yes, I was a 21-year-old man and I'm an idiot. Um, I got arrested DUI and the arresting officers basically said, where do you work? And I said, I meant to tell you that I work for the Attorney General's Department, but I work for ASIO. Big mistake. If I just said I work for the Attorney General's Department, it wouldn't have been a problem. But the problem is it's now on record that I work for ASIO. And ASIO did go and talk to the magistrate before the trial and say, we don't care what you do to him, just don't mention us. Yeah. They had to. They have to do that. So, yeah, the whole idea of – I, I was um, – you, you may not have pegged this yet, but I'm not the most discreet fellow you'll ever meet. Um, that's, and, you know, God bless my wife. She tolerates my crap. But the whole thing is um, – I, I did really feel that it was better for me to live in plain sight because most people, as I said, most people just don't believe it. Yeah. My father didn't believe it until he saw the show. He didn't believe it really. He was like, yeah, yeah he says he works for Asia. What, you know, what does he do? Oh, probably bloody sweeps the, stru- the floors and that's it. <laughs> so then when he saw the show, he went, 
oh, you, you did. And Dad was an intelligence officer for the Navy for some time. So, you know, it was that really strange thing of no one ever would believe that I worked there. So that was the perfect cover. Mentioning before that you were worried there was only a finite number of stories in you. Yeah. And that's been solved. And then now you've introduced a mini episode, yeah. frequently dropping that in as well. Yeah. What's the purpose of the mini compared to the... There's a lot of time you'll come up, you'll, you'll come up a, a, on a subject that you've really got very little... There's not a lot to it, but it's an interesting little tidbit. So why not burn it as a 10-minuter? I mean, funnily enough... I, we burnt one on the Petrovs. We did the, the Petrov incident. Um, and I literally got something from someone on Twitter recently going, what about other spies that have been kicked out of Australia? Can you t and you've mentioned other spies that have been kicked out of Australia. Why don't you do an episode on that? So it's like, actually, there are a lot of really good spy stories in Australia that no one's talked about. And then, again, another person said, what about the history of terrorism in Australia? And for me, it's like, yeah, actually, there again, there is a lot of stuff that we don't know, that people don't know about. First terrorist incident in Australia was in Broken Hill in 1911 or, nine, no, 1914. Mm. Yeah, so no one would know that. Are you sort of amazed by what people, you know, ASIO officers and things have to d deal with now with the amount of technology that's available and, you know, before where you were just walking down the street and you were actually tailing someone? Yeah, we had no mobile phones. Mobile phones didn't exist. Didn't, didn't exist when I first started there. And by the time I left, they were only just yes, becoming commonplace. Nokias. Yeah, the Nokias. And they had a thing, they called it the Belfry, where you couldn't take your device into the building because, you know, cameras were beginning to be placed on certain phones. It was a radio, it was a transmitter, right? It was essentially a microphone that you could put in any room and beam straight out of the building any information you wanted. So they had a thing called the Belfry where it was lots of little lockers and you walk up, put your phone in, take the key out and that's where your phone would stay until you left the building. So if you needed to get messages, you had to leave the building. Stupid thing about the ASIO building in Canberra was it had ASIO written on the front of it. So if you went outside to take a phone call, oh, hello, it's an ASIO officer taking a phone call. But you were meant to leave your phone on silent, but no one ever did. Yeah. That's why they called it the Belfry, because the bloody guards would sit there and this thing would just constantly ring all day. <laughs> I was going to ask if you introduced a Belfry at your house with your kids, but that would probably be a little bit annoying. No, oh, God, no. I, that's the, the, I mean, with the kids, it's quite interesting because one of the things is you are taught like online discipline with ASIO. You were taught certain things you were meant to do. And with the kids, it's just like, I'm just going to teach them that as if it's a normal thing that you do. Like a lot of the stuff, I, it was great fun teaching the kids how to surveil people. Like, you know, just turning around to the boys and going, you know, if you want to follow, you know, I want you to follow that guy. I mean, I want you to tell me where he's been. And, you know, in the park, I was teaching them how to do box surveillance and stuff like that because, you know, why not? And then when one of the parents said, have you been teaching us how to follow people? <laughs> it could be a skill, boys. You never know. Yeah, Follow or get followed. <laughs> follow or get followed. And the, again, just it was that whole idea of knowing when you're being followed. So the, the basic simple steps you go through to make sure that you don't have a tail and if you do have a tail what you do generally you don't try to lose them mm. like if you're being if you're driving you're being followed slow down that's the best thing to do because they'll either have to overtake you or they'll have to slow down and you know they're there but with with box stuff now and with drones good luck yeah man that's crazy so i've got a segue for you you were talking about uh being followed Obviously, you know, you're developing an audience through this. Is there much interaction that you, you're doing and participating with the audience on yeah. the podcast? Yep. Uh, we've got a Twitter feed, uh, I Spy Podcast, oh, at I Spy Podcast. And 
it really all started when I got uh, a message from a guy called Salty Sea Dog. And I went, oh, Salty Sea Dog, how interesting. Um, and he was sort of going, oh, you know, you said this, but did you know this? And I went, no, I didn't know that. Um, let me check that. And I went, wow, that's actually really interesting. That's an interesting point. And then out of the blue, I get a message from my niece-in-law. My nephew and my niece both serve in the Australian Navy. And she went, uh, I was just in a briefing and the head of intelligence for my section just told us we all have to listen to this thing called I Spied. And I'm like, what? And I met up with her. My brother had his 60th birthday. I met up with my niece and she basically turned around and went, I've got him on the phone right now. Do you want to have a chat to him? And I went, yeah, I'd love to. And I sort of, you know, I said, you want to come on? He went, oh, no, it'd probably be very difficult. And I'd love to get him on to talk to him about naval intelligence because there's a lot of stuff going on. But the great thing is he's constantly going, uh, yeah, if you're talking about this, you might want to look at this as well. Like um, when Evergreen got jammed in the Suez. God, I love yeah. that. Um, he just sent a message going, busy day on the water. And it was the article. I hadn't seen it. It was literally breaking news. And then we spent the next hour going, well, how did it happen? And, you know, if was would could this be uh, like a foreign actor who's hacked their control system and tried to block the Suez? And his thing was, okay, well, why would you block the Suez? And it was like we spent like an hour flicking back and forth on on Twitter, on mess, direct messaging, like going, hang on a minute. And then another thing happened uh, and a boat ran into another boat in the Suez at the same time. And it was, he's just like, dude, there's something going on. And I'm just like, oh, juicy. I'm meeting him for a beer in a couple of weeks and we're going to figure this one out and do an episode on it. And I'd just like to say, Department of Defense, if you're listening, anthony at dm.org.au, we need a sponsor. <laughs> yeah. Email me now. We'd be a great recruiting tool for intelligence officers. Trust me. We don't need a sponsor, but we could always do with another. <laughs> I'd like one. <laughs> always like to ask, you know, our guests for advice for upcoming podcasters. I mean, yours is such a unique, you know, entry point into this. What yeah. kind of advice would you give anyone who's looking to maybe well follow in your footsteps again, you know, unintentional, but the best advice is that moment when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning and you're on your second or third episode and you, you're stressing out and you know you, you, you're covered in anxiety sweat and you're desperately terrified that you're an idiot and you don't know what you're doing. Trust yourself to know what you're doing. You do. The best advice is just trust your instincts. If you've got a really good story, somebody wants to hear it. I, was, I mean, I, I always thought no one ever is going to want to know about ASIO. And then after I spied really broke it was the adelaide uh, fringe festival where it just went freaking crazy i remember bumping into james o'loughlin now i've been doing stand-up comedy for, with james o'loughlin for years and he turned around and went what the hell asio and i went yeah he went why didn't you ever talk about this before and i went who wants to hear about it and he went i think your ticket sales indicate yeah. who wants to hear about it mate it's a great story i mean great stories just uh, we want to hear them. So trust that your story is good and what you're doing is worthy. People are going to listen to it. And find a, a person you like to work with. That's the really important thing is if you, you don't work with someone you don't like because it's going to break your heart. But if you find somebody that you can really like be completely open and honest with, like Michelle has really like she has no qualms whatsoever about accusing me of being a boomer. I'm not. Um, <laughs> But goddamn, I'm close. <laughs> um, it's like 
just go with it. Trust that and let the let your let the the podcast develop naturally. Don't try to force it. That's know? a really interesting point because I mean, if you're doing a weekly podcast like you are, like yeah. we are, you basically got someone in your life. Mm. I mean, you're going to be talking to them. You're going to have a group chat. You're going to be talking yeah, well, to them constantly. We're talking constantly. My yeah. favorite is when um, I'll just get a message from Michelle on a Sunday or a Monday going, what are we talking about on Wednesday? And it's like, we're talking about this. And she's like, great. And she goes out and does her homework. But she, I don't tell her, I want you to look at this, this or this. I might send her something going, you really should read this. It's mm. going to be perfect for our app. But I remember sending her one article and, man, she knew more about it than mm. me. When I walked in, it was like, yeah, well, you know, and they, this happened here. And I'm like, did it? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah that right so she's got this phenomenal memory um and it's just my job to spin the funny out so mm. yeah you find your role within the the podcast and then you just run with it a few podcast recommendations oh uh, yeah we you, you've talked about what you. got you in but anything that you're listening to now i'm going to, i'm going to open my phone because i do yeah, have a go. huge list i'm surprised more people don't do that when we talk to them like as i said conditional release report i love it it really is it's also because um uh <laughs> that was me. kind of appropriate. That was that was rabbit hole, um, rabbit hole, which is, you put me onto actually. That's but uh, Huberman Lab, the Huberman Lab is amazing because he's uh, he's a neurologist and he basically talks about um, emotional intelligence, how to improve your sleep. It's all it's all essentially this guy gives you um, DIY tips like for li- tuning life your hacks, brain, yeah. the life hacks for your yeah. brain, which is. Phenomenal. I really like that one. Um, David Tennant does a podcast with. Is, yes. I hate him so much. <laughs> Freaking talented. Gets to play Doctor Who, which if, if you, if as an actor, if you're not going to play James Bond, play Doctor Who. Like, sc- screw you, David Tennant. And then you get to talk to all these amazing people. And then you get to do your bollocksy, bloody, stupid Zoom conversation Staged. show with, ah, oh, screw it. Um, and <laughs> the BBC, a world service podcast elements, where they go through each element on the periodic table oh, wow. and break it down, what it's used for, how it's created, what its properties are. It sounds quite, I mean, it was interesting. I was doing, uh, for a while, I've been working with the ABC in Canberra doing a regular podcast review. And the thing was, uh, I brought that one up and it was just like uh, Lish, the host, just went, how dry is it? I went, trust me, it's actually <laughs> fascinating. So there's that one, Irrational Fear. Dan Illick is fantastic. Love him. Um, uh, Cosmic Vertigo. That would be the other one I'm going to throw. Oh, Cosmic Vertigo and, of course, Free to a Good Home. There's a lot there. Some great tips. Yeah, look, Cosmic Vertigo's really, Vertigo is really good. Just go outside and look up, and that's what it's about. Right. At okay. night, don't do it in the day because you're just going to get or blinded by the sun. And, yeah. Well, you know, that happens as well. Be careful crossing <laughs> the road. That's my new podcast. Be careful crossing the road. <laughs> Time's not to look up. Frosty, DC, thank yeah. you. Thank my you pleasure. Very much.